This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Though Republican legislators have been advocating for measures to stop teaching how racism affects society in public school systems, a new set of bills takes aim at freedom of expression for universities in Wisconsin. Included in these bills is a ban on teaching what is described as critical race theory in the UW system and Wisconsin technical colleges. Also included is an elimination of legal immunity for administrators who would supposedly deprive anyone of freedom of expression. UW-Madison officials affirm their support of free speech and also express concern with this bill since employees who act in the interest of protecting public safety could potentially be sued. Bills that allow students to take a class on the Constitution in place of diversity or ethnic studies courses and require the reimbursement of housing and meal fees if UW students cannot access campus for more than a week are also being proposed. Though these measures will possibly pass both chambers in the legislature, it is likely that Governor Tony Evers will veto all of them. The Wisconsin Legislature's Budget Committee voted unanimously today to advance bills that focus on improving water quality in the state. These bills have bipartisan support and would provide funding to help farmers keep fertilizer from spreading to water sources, while also funding a new UW position to monitor groundwater quality. These bills mainly target nitrate, which feeds toxic algae blooms and can be dangerous in drinking water for pregnant women and infants. The legislation also has wide support from both agriculture and conservation groups. A bipartisan bill that would authorize funding for a new juvenile correction facility seems unlikely to pass before the state assembly adjourns. The bill would have, would have provided the opportunity to close the Lincoln Hills facility in northern Wisconsin after reports there of child neglect, intimidation of witnesses, and the use of pepper spray to cause harm over the past decade. Governor Evers has pledged to close the Lincoln Hills facility and included plans in his budget proposal for replacement sites. Republicans rejected Evers' proposal despite former Republican Governor Scott Walker signing a widely supported bill to close the facility by January 2021. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss cited a lack of details after expressing doubt that this bill could pass the legislature in time. In the annual State of the Tribes address to the state legislature today, the chairperson of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians shared a series of concerns from the threats of climate change to attacks on democracy posed by voting suppression bills promoted by Republicans. Shannon Holsey, speaking on behalf of Wisconsin's indigenous nations, highlighted high profile environmental concerns facing Wisconsin calling for protections for wolves, and calling for action on the rerouting of an Enbridge oil pipeline, reports the Associated Press. You can watch the 2022 State of the Tribes address on YouTube. The Badger State leads the nation in decline in union membership, according to a report released today by the nonprofit Wisconsin Policy Forum. This report looks at workforce union membership over the past 20 years using data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It finds that while almost all states have seen a dip in their unionized workforce, Wisconsin's proportion of union workers dropped 10% over the past two decades. One cause cited for that drop, a decline in manufacturing and construction jobs. Another cited cause, the advent of Act 10 a decade ago, which researchers found likely contributed to a decline in membership of public sector unions. The Cottage Grove Village Board unanimously approved plans for a 3.4 million square foot Amazon facility last night. 
The Capital Times reports a five-story warehouse and distribution center will be built on the corner of highways TT and N, and construction could begin as early as this year. The proposed facility has received large amounts of opposition from local residents. Of the 14 people who gave public comment at last night's meeting, 12 were against the facility. Objections to the facility range from increases in traffic and noise in the area to Amazon's labor practices. Two ATVs have fallen through Lake Mendota ice in the past two days, prompting the Dane County Sheriff's Office Marine and Trail Enforcement to warn folks of deteriorating conditions. Due to fluctuating temperatures, ice pockets have formed on the lake, making its surface unsafe, especially for ATVs and snowmobiles. No one was seriously injured from falling through the ice, though one ATV now sits at the bottom of Lake Mendota. The City of Madison will unveil its 2022 Black History Month banner and the new Edmonia Lewis stamp at the City County Building tomorrow. The ceremony will feature speeches from Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway, Madison Department of Civil Rights Director Norm Davis, and former Madison Poet Laureate Fabu. Lewis was an African-American and Native American sculptor who achieved international renown. To honor her achievements, the U.S. Postal Service issued a forever stamp, the 45th stamp in its Black Heritage series. A live stream of the event will be available on the city's website at cityofmadison.com. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 820 new confirmed COVID-19 cases reported in Wisconsin for yesterday as spread of the virus continues to decline. Just one month ago, the state had an average of over 7,000 confirmed cases each day. The current seven-day average for COVID-19 cases is 1,073. Although the number of cases continues to, de to decline, 17 deaths caused by COVID-19 were reported in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the total number of people confirmed to have died from the disease in the state to 11,760. Here in Dane County, there were 108 confirmed COVID-19 cases reported new yesterday, with one new death as well. And now on to today's top stories. This week, the Wisconsin legislature is expected to approve a suite of election administration and voting access bills, measures that voting rights advocates argue were rushed through the committee process. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. The Wisconsin legislature is poised to approve more than a dozen voting and election-related bills this week over objections from Democrats and voting rights groups that they'll make it more difficult to cast a ballot. The bills would, among many other things, set multiple new requirements for absentee ballots, give a legislative committee significant oversight of election administration, and establish new policies for voting in nursing homes. Republican Representative Rick Gundrum of Slinger says the new guidelines will help ensure the security of future elections. We are at a time when Americans no longer have faith in our election system. As state legislators, we have an obligation to implement legislation that will restore integrity in our voter system. The bills will be voted on by the Senate Tuesday, and the Associated Press reports they'll likely get a final vote in the Assembly on Thursday. At that point, however, they face an all-but-certain veto from Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The Republican-authored bills are part of a nationwide wave of restrictive voting measures. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, so far this year, more than 250 such bills have been introduced, pre-filed, or carried over from prior sessions. In a committee hearing Monday, Democratic Representative Todd Onstad of Kenosha argued the changes proposed by Republicans would undermine confidence in elections. Don't you believe that we should do be doing all that we can to make sure that it's easy to, for people to vote? This just goes in the opposite direction, where we are trying to make it hard for people to vote. And I think that that's what would eventually 
actually erode confidence in our electoral system. The bills were introduced this month, and voting rights advocates have accused GOP lawmakers of fast-tracking them through the committee and public hearing process. While Evers is likely to veto them, the bills offer a glimpse of what Wisconsin's election administration could look like should the governor lose his re-election bid in November. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. During the pandemic, most theaters closed down for many months at a time. For a union of backstage workers, returning to work has been slow. For more about this union and what it does, here's WORT reporter Heron Splinter. Thank you. Have you ever thought about what happens in a theater after the main stage curtain pulls to a close? The stage seems to gobble all the scenery up, reduced to a blank slate and ready for its next show. But after the performers you just saw walk off stage, a skilled crew of stagehands is waiting to pounce. They are the unionized technicians ready to send that show onto the next city. The stagehands are part of one of the strongest unions in the country, which provides work from experts known as gaffers, electricians, stagehands, flymen, wardrobe, makeup, stage managers, riggers, and board operators. Altogether, they are the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. If you ever watch a movie to the very end of the credits, you will see the union insignia, a five-pointed badge that tells you the film was made with union workers. In Madison, there are not so many film productions, but lots of live theatrical events. Venues like the Overture Center for the Arts and the Sylvie will contract with the Madison branch of IATSE, Local 251. I spoke to IATSE's cheerful business agent, David Gersbach, also known as Junior, about what the union provides. So it's a, a qualified, certified, safe labor force that would be hard to be able to manage yourself. The skills needed to work backstage are as varied as they are specialized. One needs to work well in a team and also be able to work quickly and safely. Just one job, like hanging lights, takes time to learn. We don't have an apprentice program, but we've, we've tried to get some of that, that training inherent. It's on-the-job learning. So it's something where as you, as you work shows, you're, you're going to pick up a little bit more. You might work in different departments. So some people might only work in one department like props or you know or if you are a carpentry you know you're good with your hands and you like to build sets and things of that nature but i think the best is when you can go to multiple departments many people working with iatsi are not full members one must work many hours as an extra before eligible to apply to join this means there are lots of total workers our call list is about uh, close to a thousand people within our existing call sheets. That's just in Madison. Justina Vickerman is the union's call steward in charge of assigning people to work. Uh, technically, the calls are assigned by uh, its uh, skill, whether can you do the, well, availability. Are you actually available to do the calls? Skill, do you have the skills to do the job? And then it's actually service to the industry. And, you know, and so there is a, an aspect of, how long, partially how long a person has been in it, or, you know, or how long they have also been a member. During the pandemic, all parts of theatrical work have changed. The union now provides COVID compliance positions to keep shows safe here at home and as they travel across the country. They feel a high sense of responsibility. Again, Dave Gershbach. When uh, performance is coming from out of state and they're traveling around, we, we don't want to be able to, you know, we don't want to infect those shows and we don't want to shut down that, that venue or that production. 
We want to continue that work to go so that we can continue to work. So we're going to try to be as accommodating as possible so that, that, you know, so that people will come to those venues and we can continue to put on those performances and enjoy the arts that we always have. Last Sunday, I saw the union load out Madison Opera's production of She Loves Me. Stagehands were crisscrossing the stage in a dance of practicality and get-her-done attitude. Everyone seemed to know each other. When I asked about diversity in the workplace, David told me that diversity is valued and that Local 251 welcomes people with open arms. If you are interested in working backstage, visit iatse251.com to learn more. For WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison's many new development projects are hard to miss as large glass buildings pop up all over downtown. One new development discussed by the Madison City Council will displace several long-standing businesses on State Street and local residents are beginning to voice their opposition. Last week, Capital Times Metro reporter Nick Garten wrote about this changing development in downtown Madison. Yesterday, WRT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with Garten about his new piece on the state of State Street. I'm on the line with Nick Garten, reporter for the Capital Times and author of his newest article on the state of State Street. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today. Thanks for having me. Now, just for those unaware, who are J.D. McCormick and what are they looking to do on State Street? Well, J.D. McCormick is a property, you know, ownership group, and they've done developments around Madison. Um they're looking to demolish a couple of buildings and construct a five-story, you know, 26-ish unit mixed-use building um, with some studios and one-bedroom apartments and some first-floor retail space. Now, I know that there's been a little bit of community pushback to this, and I want to get into that in a second here, but what did, I know that J.D. McCormick held an informational presentation earlier this month. What did they say at that presentation and why do they believe that they should be able to demolish these buildings and build their new apartment structure? They mostly just presented the information about the proposal to Urban Design Commission. Um, obviously, they already own the properties that um, these retail tenants are renting from them. Um, and so what they want to do is just you know, what developers do, which is, you know, get more housing going into Madison, um, especially downtown, so prime location. Um, you know, they didn't really have any huge agenda or anything, but, um, but yeah, they just wanted to, to construct this five-story um, mixed use. Now, what has the community response been? Why have people been upset about this building? Well, the community response has been pretty heavily opposed to this because 
a lot of the businesses that are being displaced are local flavor, high culture places that are unique to Madison, unique to State Street, and have been, at least in B-side records case, you know, super long-standing businesses on State Street. I mean, that's been there since 1982. And Freedom Skateboard Shop has been there a long time as well. And Sencha Tea Bar has been a real ally to the LGBTQ community. And so there's just a lot of pushback about the loss of these buildings, um, of, of these businesses rather, for what is sort of a copy and paste cookie cutter, you know, typical building. And speaking on those buildings, I know that there's been some discussion about marking these buildings as historic landmarks. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So Landmarks Commission, which reviews, you know, whether or not things have historic value, did find that the building that holds B-Side Records and Freedom Skate, um, as well as the building right next to it, uh, do have historic value and are contributing structures, which means that um, those buildings have been designated as being historic which adds just kind of a little more scrutiny to what plan commission ultimately decides to, to do. So what landmarks commission does is, you know, they review it. If they find that there's historic value, they'll make a recommendation to that effect to the plan commission who will take that into more consideration. And now sort of speaking from the other side, you mentioned that JD McCormick has a few other buildings here in Madison. And then also just sort of looking at, sort of downtown Madison as a whole. I'm sure anyone who has looked at downtown Madison has seen all of these new buildings popping up. Is the issue that people have with this specific building or are people more concerned about Madison as a whole in regards to the style of this building? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, it's a combination of both of those things. Specific to this building... You know, B-Side Records owner Steve Manley is saying, hey, I wasn't even notified that they were doing this and that they were going to be evicting us beforehand. And they had sort of leaked it to the State Journal that, you know, everything was fine in terms of B-Side Records and they were being assisted in finding a new location. And B-Side Records owner is saying that's not true. They were never notified. And so that is sort of the spark for this specific building. But overall, like in my reporting lately, I have found that residents are concerned that Madison is losing its charm, losing its cultural values, losing its, you know, longstanding architecture, and that businesses that are local are, are being displaced in the name of these very sort of bland, boring buildings that are that look the same and that are everywhere. You know, you drive up East Washington Avenue and it's all of these high-rise buildings um, with similar architecture. And, and I've heard a lot of residents say from other areas in town, we don't want our neighborhood to end up looking like East Washington Avenue. 
So I know B-Side Records has stated that they intend on moving somewhere else. They do not plan on completely shutting down. Have you heard anything from Freedom Skate or Sencha? How Do they have plans, if this plan goes through, to move to another location? I have not been able to reach out to them just yet and, and speak with those owners yet. I guess I just have, do you have any final thoughts on what's been happening with either this building or sort of in Madison in general with new developments? Well, it seems to me that, you know, we're in an affordable housing crisis in particular. And so the city is trying to green light as many projects as they can to address the housing crisis, to address, you know, sort of affordable housing crisis but it's it's manifesting itself in sort of incurring into all of these different neighborhoods and areas, whether it's South Madison, whether it's State Street, East Washington Avenue, and their focus is just on building as large and as dense buildings as they can, regardless of sort of what the impact is on the neighborhood vibe. And that is is starting to come to a head, and we're seeing it all over the city. I'm hearing the same comments over and over from residents, which is that Madison's losing its charm and and that we're losing things that we can't get back. I've been talking with Nick Garten, reporter for the Capital Times and author of his newest article on State Street. You can read the full article online at captimes.com. Nick, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call discusses the impending end of mask mandates at UW-Madison. Wildlife Weekly looks at what extreme weather events mean for wild animals. And Radio Astronomy lights up the sky. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. On this week's Cardinal Call, producer Hope Carnop speaks with campus news reporter Anthony Trombi about students' reactions to the announcement that the UW system will drop mask mandates in coming weeks. They don't really know what to do, and they're kind of blindsided by this decision, like middle of the year. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Last Wednesday, Chancellor Rebecca Blank announced that UW-Madison's mask mandate will end on March 12th. The announcement comes as mask mandates are ending across the country. Dane County's mask mandate will end on March 1st. 
Earlier on Wednesday, the UW system said President Tommy Thompson is working with university chancellors to remove mask mandates on campuses as soon as March 1st and no later than spring break. The mask order at UW-Madison will continue to be in effect from March 1st to March 11th to provide consistency through the midterm season. March 12th, when the order expires, is the start of spring break. Both the UW system and UW-Madison announcements pointed to a decline in COVID-19 cases. Blank said in the email that this does not mean the pandemic is over. The university will continue providing free masks and encourages those who want to continue masking to do so. The mask mandate dropping will be a significant turning point in the pandemic on campus. It will mark almost exactly two years since the university first announced that they would suspend face-to-face instruction. UW-Madison's announcement last week said they recognized that individuals will have different reactions to mask requirements ending and that for some it may feel stressful. The Associated Students of Madison and the Teaching Assistance Association have especially voiced concern about the mask mandate ending. Today, I am joined by campus news writer Anthony Trombi to discuss how ASM and TAA have reacted to this announcement. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you just start by giving us an overview of your article and who you talked to for this story? Yeah, I uh, talked to John Walker, who is the TAA co-president. Um, with Adrian George, and he basically just went over the uh, reaction the TA had to the mask mandate and kind of the things they had to say. Um, And then I also talked to uh, ASM representatives for shared governance. And the first like questions I had for uh, the TA was kind of what their first reactions were. And um, he said that it was really bad and that TA basically was not a part of the table. They had no say in what they, they were supposed to do or the decision-making process. And John Walker was actually quite angry um, the fact that this decision was made. And yeah, I talked to a few others um, on ASM, shared governance representatives. Uh, Chair Reese Bailey was very uh, confused and kind of caught off guard by the uh, mandate being removed. To their understanding, the mass mandate was supposed to uh, be kind of throughout the whole semester. And they're just a little disappointed that the representatives that were at you know, part of the discussion to make the mass mandate go away. Uh, they they didn't really meet their advice and didn't uh, really understand ASM's concerns. What were some of the specific concerns that the TAA told you specifically about the timing of when this mass mandate will expire? Um, yeah, so for the timing, they, they said that it's like everyone knows it's going to end March 12th, but they kind of wanted it to be at the end of the semester, especially because there are a lot of uh, teaching assistants who signed a contract. And now a lot of the uh, teaching assistants actually contacted John Walker and said, basically, hey, we, uh, we, we don't know what to do. We don't want to be here anymore. Like we have our jobs, we signed a contract, but I don't feel safe because I might be at risk. And so that was just a voice of concern that uh, John expressed to me. Specifically thinking about what ASM had to say, what were their concerns about the process of the mass mandate ending and what they felt their participation was like in that decision? Yeah, so they thought that they had representatives, they had four representatives at the meeting, but they did not feel that they were a part of the table. They didn't feel like their voices were heard. All four representatives uh, voted that and expressed that they wanted the mandate to stay till the end of the semester, Um, but these voices were not heard. So they're a little disappointed. They're also disappointed that 
they don't really know like if the students coming back from spring break like with COVID and the spreads how that's going to affect uh spread of the virus so there's just a lot of factors going in and they felt like they didn't have a chance or opportunity to kind of voice those concerns yeah, I know in your story, you also talked about TAA, kind of thinking about what professors are feeling like. Can you explain what Walker said about those concerns? Yeah, so professors, they're feeling, they feel that uh, they don't have their voices heard and they're kind of, be, they're kind of put in a predicament. I've already been in some classes, professors, they, they're, they don't know if they uh, should keep the like mask on or off, or are they going to wear a mask? Or are they going to keep it on? Of course, it's their choice, but yeah, the professors, they, they don't really know what to do and they're kind of blindsided by this decision, like middle of the year, they have a curriculum, you know, everything's set, so it kind of changes things. Uh, but yeah, the professors just are a little caught off guard. Have you overheard any other reactions among friends or in classes about the mask order ending? And how do you think students have just been reacting to this decision in general? Yeah, so I've, I've noticed in some of my classes that students are pretty happy to get rid of the mask, I think with the high vaccination rates and just kind of the attitude of students there. We've been wearing masks for a while. They, they seem relieved, but there are some hesitant opinions and you know, they're not gonna feel like they're the majority for people who are a little concerned. So you might not hear that, but I've had, had a lot of professors voice their opinions. Uh, I even have one professor who said the week after spring break, she asked politely that people wear it for the first week. And you know, we'll see if people respect that or not, but professors are definitely implementing different things already of how they're gonna handle the mandate going forward. Great. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? Read it and make sure you talk about it because I feel like not a lot of people are talking about this mandate being lifted and kind of the problems or positives, depending on how you look at it. So I think that we should really examine how it was done and going forward, see how the university does with other uh, issues like this. Great. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us, Anthony. Yeah, thanks for having me. In other campus news, at his State of the State address, Governor Tony Evers announced $25 million in funding to extend the UW system in-state tuition freeze through June 2023. $5 million in funding will also go toward mental health services on campuses, including virtual counseling and more support staff. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes visited campus the next day to highlight Evers' promise to keep tuition frozen. He toured the Multicultural Center and the Red Gym, where he also discussed Evers' call for a special legislative session and efforts in the legislature to ban concepts associated with critical race theory. A fight broke out at a basketball game immediately after the Badgers took the win over Michigan on Sunday. Videos of the incident flooded social media. Coaches Greg Gard and Juwan Howard had a confrontation and Howard punched a Wisconsin assistant coach. Athletic Director Chris McIntosh said what happened was unfortunate and said he contacted the league and spoke to the commissioner. At the time of this recording, the Big Ten Conference has suspended Howard for five games. UW-Madison is mourning the loss of Dave Black, the founding general manager of WSUM Student Radio. He died earlier this month at the age of 66. Black was foundational to bringing WSUM to its current status. He worked to grow the station's coverage, obtain an FCC license, and establish studios on campus. The journalism community at UW-Madison and alumni of the station have offered up tributes to Black, honoring his enduring legacy. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. 
Our newest print edition, our Sex and Life issue, will be available on stands and online on Thursday. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. If you looked outside today and wondered how the birds and possums deal with the cold, icy, and altogether dreary weather, you're not alone. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg discusses how different animals endure extreme weather conditions. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the unexpected weird weather changes that really affect wildlife and have been increasing in frequency here um, for a very, very long time around the globe. Uh, Wisconsin is a place of cold climates, right? So I think of Wisconsin and I think the beautiful seasons where we've got the really cold winter with lots of snow. We have the beautiful spring where baby animals are breeding and having babies. And then we have summer, which is hot and humid and nobody ever wants to be in Wisconsin during that time period. Uh, and that's when our babies are growing up. And then we also have the fall period, which is kind of the senescence, the quiet, uh, crunchy leaves and football games and everything else fun. Well, wildlife doesn't really care about that. They are out there in the world trying to survive and climate change has really had a big effect on patterns, especially weather, just, you know, interrupting days that maybe we think are more normal versus days that are not as normal. And uh, throughout the seasons, this does have a profound effect on our natural environment, which means that as rehabilitators, we're seeing animals that are trying to get through and sometimes suffer through these extreme weather events. And right now I was uh, you know, thinking about this winter and how we've had major storms that have just been going through the Midwest, especially Wisconsin, seeing our ice storms, seeing snow and rain, and then widely vast temperature differences from a really beautiful warm, you know, 30 to 50 degree day, and then followed by, you know, overnight freezing temperatures. And for a wild animal that is not safe and warm inside a house, except for hopefully their burrow if they're hibernating, or if they're in a birdhouse or a tree or something like that, they, they are still exposed to the weather more than, you know, some people would be in their houses, right? With a thermostat and a heater and you're safe and tucked in. And no, not everybody is like that, but the wildlife out there really have to live through it. And so I thought we'd talk about the different species that we see maybe most commonly in these weather events and for what reasons. The first would be birds. We see a lot of birds that are affected by climate change and weather events. When I think of ice storms, like the ones that we've been having recently, those ice storms really 
have a profound effect on birds that might be out and trying to hunt for their food. So I think of raptors that get iced wings. We almost every year for the last couple of years have gotten at least one raptor that comes in, whether it's a hawk or an eagle or something that has been trying to fly through an ice storm or trying to get its food because it's hungry and the ice coats their feathers and then they're grounded and they're stuck on the ground until someone helps to rescue them. And if the temperatures have continued to stay freezing after that point, uh, after the warm weather event that caused rain or sleet, then uh, that can be a really, like that could be life or death situation for that animal. And so many times we've had them come into rehab. We are able to bring them inside to an indoor warm temperature. We blow dry their wings. We get them, you know, fully, hopefully dry and weatherproof again. And it's an in and out kind of 24 to 48 hour period. But, you know, that animal could have or may have died otherwise without that help because they would have been stuck with iced wings and couldn't take off to fly. And you could get frostbite if he was on the ground for too long. You know, those are types of issues that can definitely throw a, a bird out of the entire balance of its life. We also have uh, migratory changes and sometimes what we call like a false summer. The warmer winter and then the early spring temperatures, you know, we get earlier snow melt and then breaking up of ice. And so we've got different, you know, changes in the flow rates of the water around our areas. It could change the growing season for plants and also for when insects are hatching. And when we think about these warm and then cold temperatures again, we're thinking about actually plants a lot of times because of the uh, growing season length and then frost problems. So if there's a frost damage event because it was warm all of a sudden for a bit and then boom, it's cold again, and that plant ends up dying from a, a weird early frost or an extreme temperature event, that might be a plant that is critical for a species. And those wild animals, whether they're eating the plants or whether an insect is required to work with that plant, whether through pollination, or maybe it is um, a plant it lives on or is, is actually independently, uniquely reliant on, then if those insects don't hatch, but the birds are expecting them to because of a frost, maybe frost killed the insects themselves, if they're in a cocoon or other things, like those can all affect the ability for those birds to find food and then they have to go to an alternative food source. And sometimes the alternative food source is not really the best food source for them and can cause complications bodily, whether it's emaciation, meaning that they're starving, maybe it causes diarrhea. So a lot of our, you know, berries maybe, uh, especially invasive berries or buckthorn thorn berries, for example, can cause birds to have diarrhea. So like that might be the only food available, but they don't really like it. Now that's not a great example, but buckthorn I think of as being one of the last fall blooming plants that birds like robins will try to eat because there might not be more berries left. Yeah, those things happen and are happening right now, especially again, as climate change is increasing. Uh, we will also see animals uh, affected by frostbite. We have a number of possums that are in care right now, and possums are one of the species that we see most frequently admitted with frostbite problems because they have open areas on their toes and their tail is long and doesn't have fur at the tip, uh, and their ears are not really furred. They're not like the other mammals like a fox would be where there's full fur on their, like between their toes, all the way up to their ears and their tail is beautiful and bushy. Those poor possums really have it hard, unfortunately, and they are, you know, recovering in care from wounds that are open and sometimes infected and even to the point where frostbite has affected their bones. The tail is made up of vertebra, right? So if the bone is exposed from tissue being degraded away after it's necrotic, it's been frostbitten, 
and swollen and a whole lot of other fun things, then again, they, they could get septic eventually with that bone being exposed to the environment, infection setting in later, uh, frostbite is no fun. And that could happen in just a day of a swing, you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily progress that far yet, but that one really low temperature day, you know, negative wind temps and having to be outside or something could give them frostbite because it can happen very quickly. And then they have to deal with that later um, when the tissue starts to die off. So those are problems that we see often. We also have issues with a lot of our waterfowl that might get frozen into ice if for some reason they were just in a bad spot being grounded. Imagine to yourself that again, uh, that water has melted in an area, whether you know open water underneath in the riverbeds or streams are starting to flow into a larger body of water. If that opens and then, you know, waterfowl on a good day, let's say it's a nice warm day, more of it is melted, more of it is exposed, they might land there and they're like happily swinging. Blah, blah. And then the extreme temperature that comes with it later that evening, maybe if they hadn't taken off and they're like, yeah, I'm going to stay here in this really good spot. And then all of a sudden the temperatures drop and then that ice starts to freeze again. And we have had many waterfowl with a wing or a leg frozen into the ice because they weren't able to get out of that situation. So, you know, those are the types of species we're also seeing, at least in Wisconsin, during these weather events. So, you know, be on the lookout right now for birds that might be struggling. You know, sometimes they get lulled into this, this false sense of security with the nice, beautiful warm temperatures. I heard more birds singing this week than I have for a while because it's getting close to spring. But they're like, yeah, spring is starting. And then, nope, it's not. It's false. So it's the, you know, six more weeks of winter. Thanks for the groundhogs for doing that. Uh, we, we want to be careful about when that actually officially happens. Animals will still be affected by not having enough food, especially food source, fresh water, and being apt to potentially get themselves injured because they are stuck in high wind events where they are blowing everywhere, especially birds, um, maybe trees. You know, we've got squirrels that will be nesting in drays very soon here. So those, those paper leaf nests are going to be falling to the ground with a windstorm. So look in your yard. You know, be aware of what wildlife live near you and know who your closest rehabilitator is. So you can find our list on the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Rehabilitation uh, Index. So there should be a list of everybody by county. Uh, and if you're in the Madison area, know that Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center is here to help. And you can give us a call at 608-287-3235. So uh, get to know your rehabbers, know what to do with wildlife and what species they take. And if you have any questions about anything, we are always happy to answer the phone to give you advice on a situation that you might have. Whether you know for sure the animal needs help or not, we have a lot of expertise from our staff about wildlife topics and others. So thank you for listening. Today has been a fun day talking about extreme weather events. And this has been our Wildlife Weekly on WORT. There are plenty of ways to study the stars, but one particularly useful method is to examine the light that stars and various interstellar anomalies produce. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host, host Rourke Halbager walks us through the complex ways astronomers look at light. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke, and today I'll take you through a web of filaments and bubbles in the Milky Way. We observe outer space in a variety of ways, from light to gravitational waves to high-energy cosmic ray particles. We can detect a lot of stuff here on Earth. Electromagnetic radiation, or light, 
is the primary way we study the universe. The constituent objects of the Milky Way create light waves with many different frequencies. Astronomers study these different frequencies, which make up the spectrum of light we see from our galaxy. Often, we just see starlight. We approximate stars as perfect thermal emitters, absorbing and emitting light at all wavelengths in all directions. With the additional assumption of the surface of the star being a single temperature, we get Planck's spectrum. Of course, these assumptions don't match perfectly with any star. The overall trends in the spectrum of light match what we observe, so we approximate it as a perfect thermal emitter. Other times, we observe light in our galaxy which does not follow the trend of being a perfect thermal emitter. For example, in accretion disks around black holes where plasma gets really hot, we see X-ray light. These X-rays are created by processes like bremsstrahlung radiation. This just means breaking radiation in German, and it's aptly named. When an electron goes flying by a positively charged ion, the ion slows it down, like a speed bump. These interactions happen a ton in the plasma of black hole accretion disks. In a recent paper led by Professor Youssef Zadeh at Northwestern University, Researchers presented observations of the Milky Way galaxy. Specifically, they took a picture of the Milky Way in 20-centimeter wavelength light with the Meerkat Radio Telescope Array in South Africa. This large wavelength emission is characteristic of a different radiation process, neither Bremsstrahlung nor that of a perfect thermal emitter. Additionally, their picture showed long filaments and nearly spherical shells in the Milky Way. The spherical shells are all easily associated with supernova remnants, but the cause of the filaments is an open question. The researchers suggest that the high magnetic field strength in these filaments implies the radiation comes from cosmic ray electrons. Those are the same relativistic particles traveling near the speed of light which we see on Earth in things like cloud chambers. These particles are flying all throughout the galaxy. When they travel near a strong magnetic field, they spiral around the magnetic field and give off light. Professor Youssef Zadeh and the other researchers think electrons traveling near the speed of light next to a strong magnetic field created the emission in the form of those filaments. The spectrum of light they saw also agrees with that hypothesis. However, the biggest open question is how did the strong magnetic fields end up where they are? They appear to be randomly oriented and randomly positioned throughout the galactic disk, but they all have similar lengths. What is the underlying mechanism which launched these tubes of magnetic field? Possibly, it could be a cosmic ray-driven wind. These winds have been suggested in other galaxies, and they could explain these magnetic filaments. Hopefully, some more observation, simulation, and theoretical work will identify exactly what produced these filaments. But for now, we have some cool pictures of the magnetic Milky Way thanks to the Meerkat Array. This has been Radio Astronomy, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Leahy. Your reporter tonight was Heron Splinter. We also had reporting from Wisconsin News Connections, Jonah Chester. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. 
Nate Weggy helped produce this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Stay, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with a nuestro patio. Good night. <laughs>